Good afternoon. This is Dr. Daniel Guerra and this is Authentic Biochemistry Podcast. Today is 19 August 2023. I want to continue on this lecture series here. This is again a biomedical portrait, and I'm calling it number three, and it's in immunometabolic disease. So let's just jump right into this. I mentioned that we were going to talk a little about AMP kinase, and that's what I'm going to do now. AMP kinase promotes mitochondrial biogenesis and function. It does so by phosphorylating epigenetic factors. That's DNMT1, RBP7, and the histone acetyltransferase one. And based on the phosphorylation of those various proteins, you're going to have a differential effect on their activity. So adenosine monophosphate activated protein kinase, that's AMP kinase, is indeed a master regulator of cellular energy in the adipose and in immune cells, as well as most other cells in the body particularly bioactive systems such as the liver, cardiac muscle, central nervous system, and of course, in all the circulating lymphocytes and leukocytes, <clears throat> skeletal muscle also. So AMP kinase consensus phosphorylation sequences have been discussed in uh, occurring in three different polypeptides. And this phosphorylation of these canonical phosphorylation sequences results in nucleosomal retailering. So again, the enzymes are DNA methyltransferase 1, retinoblastoma binding protein 7, and that histone acetyltransferase 1. So DNMT1, remember, mediates DNA methylation, and in that occurrence will limit often, not absolutely, transcription factor access to promoters. And it is inhibited by RBBP7. So acetylation of histones by HAT1, as we've described many times, creates a more relaxed chromatin DNA structure, which of course favors transcription. The involvement of AMP kinase-mediated phosphorylation results in the activation of HAT1, but the inhibition of DNMT1. And indeed, for DNMT1, the inhibition is direct upon phosphorylation of the enzyme and because of the result of its increased interaction with its inhibitor protein, that is the retinoblastoma binding protein 7. Now, a paper published a few years back in Science Signaling show that in human umbilical vein cells, a pharmacological AMPK activation triggers nucleosomal remodeling with a decreased cytosine methylation, leading to an increase, as you might guess, to be coherent expression of certain genes that are, this is all happening in the nucleus, not in the mitochondrial uh, network of gene expression. 
And the nuclear genes that are being altered in expression uh, are involved in mitochondrial biogenesis and function. So although these are not mitochondrial genome expressed genes, they are ones that are going to be involved in mitochondrial biogenesis. And these are proteins we've discussed in the past many times in authentic biochemistry. One of them is this peroxisome proliferator activated receptor gamma coactivator 1-alpha, a.k.a. PGC1-alpha. Furthermore, another protein that's involved here in the nation transcription of this process, MAMP kinase, by inhibiting DNMT1 and activating HAT1, is the transcription factor A, or TFAM, that's, again, involved in mitochondrial gene expression, if you recall. And a couple of other proteins, very important in mitochondrial respiration. These include uncoupling proteins 2 and 3, UCPs 2 and 3. So this was observed, again, in human umbilical vein cells, but also going back to the murine model in aorta, given, again, a pharmacological AMPK activation. So, all of this explains how AMPK has an effect on controlling mitochondrial gene expression downstream from the activation of nuclear gene expression. And this then is indirect, but it does involve the nuclear nucleosomal remodeling phenomena I just went through. Now, <clears throat> Let's go back and talk about leptin again. I just want to make sure you understand something here that is interesting that I want to go back and revisit with you. Remember, AMP kinase is involved in adiponectin and to some degree a lot of adipokine expression in adipose. Now remember, adipose tissue regulates energy homeostasis by synthesizing at the transcriptional translational level and then secreting the adipokines. One of them is adiponectin, but the other that we talked about first was leptin. So that's indeed the case. Now, here's an interesting um, biochemical phenomenon that just came to light. How recently? Just really about a year or two ago. Succinate has been linked, but its mechanism not well understood to be a mediator of immune response as well as lipolysis. And in that context, the immune response and lipolysis has an effect on leptin expression in the adipocyte working through its receptor, succinate receptor, called the SUCNR1, succinate receptor 1. Okay, it's a nuclear receptor, obviously. That's what the N's for. Now, Adipocyte SUCNR1 deficiency impairs leptin response to feeding, whereas oral succinate mimics nutrient-related leptin dynamics, working again through its receptor, the uh, NR1. So succinate NR1 activation controls leptin expression via a circadian clock in the murine model. 
which involves AMP kinase in association with the Janus kinase and the CEBP-alpha-dependent transcriptional regulation, something we talked about a while back, the circadian clock rhythm. Now, this, again, has to do with normal physiological row of succinate-inducing leptinogenesis in adipose, again, murine model. Now, going back to humans, obesity-associated hyperleptinemia is also linked to succinate nuclear receptor 1 overexpression in the adipocyte. And in fact, that receptor, and binding to its ligand succinate, becomes a major predictor of adipose tissue leptin overexpression in the obese adipose in humans. So the succinate SUCNR1 axis is what we're talking about here, <clears throat> may be a new target because it seems to be involved in metabolite sensing, therefore mediating a nutrient induced leptin dynamic expression system, ultimately controlling, yeah, whole body mass and whole body bioenergetic homeostasis working through the adipose. Now, this is all coming from a paper published just April of this year in Cell Metabolism. Okay, now, Some interesting detail here. This receptor, SUCNR1, I'm just going to call it NR1 from now on, knowing that the ligand is succinic acid, right? broad expression in tissues, highly abundant, though, in human and in murine model, white adipose tissue. Extracellular succinate transiently increases the response to a physiological stimulus, including exercise, cold exposure, or food ingestion. This is called succinate sensing by NR1. And it may be a component of a, this metabolite sensing machinery that seems to be responsible for governing some level of global body mass and energy homeostasis. So adipose tissue, as we've just mentioned, central in regulating whole body energy homeostasis because it's regulated by lipoprotein metabolism, glucose uptake, and then the entire aspect of long-term bioenergetic mediated control over energy metabolism because of the movement of triacylglycerol to and from adipose, from feeding to fasting and back again. Very critical. So White adipose tissue functions as a major organ, as an energy reservoir. And the kind of organ adipose is, is an endocrine organ. Right? We did, we've been now describing what I mentioned in the past. And again, why is it an endocrine organ? Because it secretes adipokines. And those adipokines work peripherally, so it's an endocrine effect, to control metabolism. Among those adipokines is leptin, as you know. 
and leptin increases by adipose tissue mass. And it's believed to regulate food intake, right, in this CNS at the arcuate nucleus by turning POM, POMC on um, when there's adequate amount of leptin reception, shutting off the agouti-related protein and the NPY, which is the feeding stimulating system. So that's controlling the anorexic versus the orexigenic axis in the hypothalamus. Right? That's what leptin's doing. That's a major role there, right? So circulating levels of leptin are supposed to be proportional to depot fat. But you know that that becomes corrupted in the obesogenic state. This is how you get things like leptin resistance. And the, remember the whole idea um, about leptin receptor as well as insulin receptor, endocytosis and degradation via proteolysis with overstimulation of insulin from feeding and leptin from increase in adipose mass. So this is all becoming now clear in the way this works in, a, in an overall gamut to control bioenergetics and storage depot fat, regulating hepatic metabolism, skeletal muscle metabolism, as regulated by the central nervous system. Okay. Now, the succinate NR1, that's the receptor, highly expressed in adipocytes. And its function, which is ascribed to what it does for leptinogenesis, is also in association with an inhibition of lipolysis, which of course can be important in the obesogenic pathophysiological state. Now, this receptor is a G-protein coupled receptor, okay, of course. So membrane-associated, which means specific lipids are linked to its activation. And when it is activated, <coughs> the NR1 transmits signals through multiple pathways, depending on its cellular environment, adipose, say, versus hepatocyte, versus myocyte. Okay? So the NR1 engagement in white adipose is associated with the G-alpha-I cyclic AMP signaling transduction cascade, therefore deriving an antilipolytic action based on succinate binding. And that explains the moderate lean phenotype observed in whole body succinate receptor knockout mice under standard dietary conditions. Okay. Now, there's a lot of discrepancy here, though, in these knockout mice when they're studied, when they're given obesogenic diets. Now, unfortunately, and I told you this multiple times, in the mouse model, the HFD is used for an obesogenic diet. What's that? High-fat diet. The high-fat diet is not replicated in humans. 
Lipid metabolism is not regulated the same way in the human as it is in the mouse. So high-fat diet does not induce this obesogenic state. Okay? Only under rare conditions does it, and that's when there's simply a hyperkilocalorie load. It's overfeeding, and it doesn't matter really where the calories come from, fat, carbohydrate, or even protein, to dysregulate and generate dyslipidemia in humans. And the mouse model is always high-fat diet. Okay? So you have to take all of this then into account. And later on, you're going to see there's a whole other system that does not mimic uh, what occurs in the mouse mouse. It's very common, okay? But it seems that the succinate and its receptor in macrophage immune response and obesity in humans is a potential regulator of macrophage activation to the M1 domain, meaning pro-inflammatory. Okay, So that's why we're bringing it up here in these lectures. An immunometabolic system. Now remember succinate, just to keep you uh, on keel here, even keel, is synthesized from succinyl-CoA via succinyl-CoA synthetase. So the enzyme's name for the back reaction. Succinyl-CoA synthase is in the TCA cycle. It's actually a synthetase because GTP is synthesized. And of course, that takes succinyl-CoA, GDP, and inorganic phosphate, makes GTP, free reduced coenzyme A, and succinic acid. Right? Yes. And succinic acid then is reacted on by succinate dehydrogenase, which converts FAD to FADH2 and fumarate. Right? So that is an FADH2 producing dehydrogenase in the TCA cycle. Right? Of course. So that's where you build. Now, now that means for succinate to build up, the succinate dehydrogenase has to be turned down. That means there has to be a high enough ratio of FADH2 to FAD, right, the oxidized form. That will occur in the citric acid cycle when, there's an, when there is either a slowdown of electron transport chain, utilization of the reduced nucleotides, right, NADH and FADH2, or when there is an overabundance of beta oxidation of fatty acids. Now, what do you think is going to be happening in the obesogenic adipose? It's going to have a lot of lipid metabolism, some of which can include beta oxidation, remember? From, for example, the adipocytes themselves, as well as resident macrophages, the M2 macrophages, will also carry out limit beta oxidation of fatty acids. Remember that? I hope you do. Then, succinate could build up by receptor. All right, so now you got that whole picture. Wanted to bring back that TCA cycle. Now, let's take a little brief um, departure from succinate for a moment. Let's talk about something else, which plays a direct role, of course. Dendritic cells, right? Dendritic cells are essential for the generation of a coupling between the innate and the adaptive immune response. Dendritic cells are far more potent in activating T lymphocytes and B lymphocytes than our other innate immune cells. Dendritic cells do act as innate immune cells. They can generate 
multiple inverse cytokines, chemokines, growth factors, etc. Matrix metalloproteases, too, by the way. But dendritic cells also are very potent antigen presenting cells. And, and the synapse between dendritic cells and T lymphocytes is florid in the literature. And dendritic cells play a very, very, very potent role in activating T lymphocytes to generate an acquired immune response. We went over this several times. Okay. Now, there are immunological and metabolic signaling pathways that are required for dendritic cell maturation. So let's go back to murine bone marrow derived. This is in the mouse again. I'm sorry, but this is where the work is done. Murine bone marrow derived DCs, these are BMDCs. And they will switch to a Warburg metabolism. Remember, that is glycolysis in the presence of oxygen upon activation. These are the immature BMDCs. And they're characterized by a strong upregulation. Again, it's the Warburg effect. Aerobic glycolysis via activation of a master growth metabolic regulator. And we know what it's going to be, right? It's mTOR, mammalian target of rapamycin. And that's accompanied by a significant downregulation of oxidative phosphorylation, so non-mitochondrial involvement. Now, conversely, that metabolic program is suppressed in immature BMDC by a high activity of cellular energy sensor AMP kinase, been talking about recently. That is within this lecture. AMP kinase inhibits mTOR activation. That's right, because it's involved in mitochondrial expansion, right? So the downregulation of oxidative phosphorylation and BMDC during the switch to Warburg metabolism has been reported to result from a suppression of mitochondrial activity. And what is causing that? Inducible nitric oxide synthase derived nitric oxide. Remember, that's from two lectures ago. However, human, this is all in the murine model I just described to you. So it's interesting axis, right? Human dendritic cells and indeed macrophages, which we've been spending a lot of time on, don't normally express the INOS isoform. They express the NOS isoform 2, right? which is not necessarily inducible in this system. So it's not clear here whether or not this whole Warburg metabolism effect that you see, switch, the switching of it, that axis in urine, is the same. In fact, the study in Frontier Immunology 2019 suggests that while mature human dendritic cells are definitely more glycolytic than those immature your uh not murine now but just bone derived dcs right they do not the mature human dcs do not entirely downregulate oxidative phosphorylation neither do the immune did the immature instead they seem to have a role that is in between you have glycolysis and you also have tca cycle function now, that goes back to our whole discussion of succinate, see? Because you need TCA cycle involvement, that is robust mitochondrial activity, not simply Warburg glycolysis, in order to turn on 
that entire succinate system, which in, is involved in the regulation of leptin and adiponectin. Okay, I got to check my time here. Oh, we're okay. Wow, okay, I'm going well. Let's try to finish this. But the other reason I'm bringing this up is this Frontiers in Immunology paper is a good example of the lack of coherence with murine models of immune response, metabolism, and the inflammatory response. Okay? Lack of coherence with murine models with human. Because you need to have all the players. Now, more recent work, the 2022-2023 papers, do talk about an inducible nitric oxide synthase. But in the obesogenic adipose system, remember? So that's why I'm bringing you uh, to this arc, okay? Now, phosphorylation of AMP kinase, what about that itself? We can talk about phosphorylation of the AMP kinase having an analgesic effect in neuropathic pain. So the activation of AMP kinase and a downstream protein called P65 NF-kappa B-related are critically involved in controlling neuroinflammation and inflammatory arthritis. In fact, another involvement here, enhanced cannabinoid type 2 receptor-mediated activation will inhibit a nod-like receptor protein 3. Now, you've heard of this before. That's the NLRP3 inflammasome to reduce the release of interleukin-1-beta, P17, and a mature fragment of interleukin-1-beta, all of which contributes to CFA-induced pain hypersensitivity. Yes. So, complete Freud's adjuvant, that CFA, induces a cell-mediated immunity and potentiates the production of IgG, of course, which potentiates the immune response. So pro-inflammatory cytokines like TNF-alpha and IL-1-beta contribute to pain signaling, wherein interleukin-1-beta is expressed by activated macrophages. Remember, as a proprotein, proteolytically processed the mature fragment by a caspase-1 protease. The mature fragment of IL-1-beta causes sensitization of nerve fibers by primary sensory neurons to cause pain hypersensitivity. So the question is, does AMP kinase inhibit complete Freud's adjuvant-induced upregulation of interleukin-1-beta? The answer is unclear. Perhaps AMP kinase activation decreases inflammatory pain by inhibiting NF-kappa-B activation. And, of course, concomitant downregulation of IL-1-beta. The paper in, uh, I'm looking at in Juro, Journal of Neuroinflammation reported that ACAR, that's a nucleotide, and it is an AMP kinase activator, may work to act as an antagonist 
to interleukin-1-beta. That then puts into involvement the entire regulation, uh, regulation of AMP kinase, P65, NF-kappa B, and interleukin-1-beta. I was talking about the beginning of this lecture. That's why I brought it up, the pro-inflammation response, okay? This is, again, AMP kinase functioning one more time, you see? Now, I want to get involved in discussion of translational control. Let me see if I have enough time to do this. No, I don't. Okay, that's fine because this is a, a really interesting aspect of gene expression that is often not described, certainly not in biochemistry contexts, usually in molecular genetics and usually in very, very rare encounters with human disease. But the reason I'm going to talk about it is because it's directly related to a translational control of what I've just been talking about in terms of a dipokine expression. Yes, in adipose, yes, particularly adiponectin. And that's going to link up amp kinase and all these different components I put together for you just now. But that's for next time. So have a pleasant Tuesday afternoon um, and uh, listen to us next time on Authentic Biochemistry. This is Dr. Daniel Guerra uh, saying bye for now.